are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with a friend of mine and a fellow peer recovery coach, JD Ouellette. And JD, she, I've always known JD as a parent advocate, so we have probably known each other via the internet for six or seven years and we've met in person numerous times at various different conferences and so JD does peer mentoring um, and it's sort of coaching for parents of children who and young adults who have eating disorders. So the first thing, I'm just going to jump straight into the conversation that we had, but the first question that I asked JD was, well, how did she get into the role of being a coach? Here's JD. It was a very interesting experience in that um, I've always talked to people a lot. So I had a long commute in my job before. So I'd often do an hour long phone call with a family in the morning and then an hour long phone call with a family on my way home, um, hands free. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, so that was awesome. And then when I when the company went under and I was home more, I just sort of naturally started talking to more people. And it was actually, you know, I would have conversations with people and they'd say, okay, how much do I owe you for that? And I started out saying, oh, no, I don't I don't charge for this. I just I just do this because I love it. And I actually had one woman um, who was a social worker said to me, I'm actually kind of bothered by that because I would love to talk to you more, but I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to call you back and take this time and energy from you without paying you for it. It doesn't feel right to me. So that planted a little seed about, hmm, okay, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I'd sort of been thinking of it that I acquired all this knowledge, you know, sort of from other parents, from the fine program we were in, all of that, and um, hadn't really considered it about charging for it until then. And then as I sort of opened my mind to that idea, it sort of just came from every direction that this is a really good idea. And, and what I really hope to accomplish with it, not just, you know, in the individual lives that are being changed and helped, but this model of um, paid expert by experience coaching that you provide, that I provide, I think um, is the wave of the future. Um, in terms of helping people be ill less time, helping families get through it, feeling more supported, all of that sort of thing. So so yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, there's certainly a gap in the treatment model. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't exist. Um, yes. So the gap has to be there because we're filling it. And um, I think that having... It's it's just merely a, a peer support thing, which peer support always sounds like it's oh, just peer support, you know, not that important. Whereas right. if you think of, of most other mental health treatment models that are based on peer support, actually having people that have been through or recovered from a problem themselves being the primary sources of treatment for people currently going through it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's very true. And I think, too, that, you know, one of the reasons you and I are doing this and I would say are good at what we do is um, it's it's our peer. 
it's our peer support experience, lived experience, all of that stuff as well. But I know you, you know, you're always reading and writing and researching and that sort of thing. And, and I'm doing that as well. So it's, um, it's the experience, which I think is really important. And I think it's combining it in a person who is, you know, um, a good educator and researcher and sort of keeps up on all of that stuff as well. Yes, certainly important. And we're in changing times. Um, and so it, I think that you have to, anybody that's treating eating disorders at the moment has to be really on it and keep up with the science. It's quite scary actually thinking that that's not possible. That's possibly not the norm that every treatment provider isn't doing that. It's quite terrifying. I'm going to agree with you on that because it's, I'm always astonished when I'm the first person that's told a parent or a family something you know, some of the stuff that's happened in the last couple of months, okay, that, that part I get. But sometimes I'll work with families who've been at this for 10 years and have never heard of family-based treatment. And, you know, then I kind of just want to cry for a minute before I pick myself up and start helping them. Um, but people don't know what they don't know oftentimes. And, um, and people are, families are so overwhelmed when this is happening. And so in the beginning, it's the overwhelmed part. And then as it goes on, it begins to be the fatigue part. And yeah. Yeah. both of those things make it really hard for people to acquire information. Yeah. So since your time being a coach, um, what do you like about it? Oh my gosh. I, I mean, I just love helping the families. That's, that's huge. And I love being able to individualize the help I get to what they need. So what's the age of their loved one, or even I've even done partners. Um, you know, what's the dynamic there? What have they tried? What's worked? What hasn't worked? What are their resources? Like it's no good for me to be suggesting things that people will never be able to access. Um, so you know, sort of that part of it. And then individualizing, you know, like I said, at the level of support they need, because I have families, I've had families where I'm actually writing daily to do lists. And, um, you know, because they're just in a place where it's been going on for so long, and it's been so awful that they just kind of, they, they can't even see clearly anymore, everything they're in a fog. So just having that simple, you know, part of that is really helpful. Um, I, have always been really good at letters. So I love that, you know, someone will say, well, I really need to tell my doctor this, that, and, but I can't even get started. And I can, you know, sort of whip out a letter and say, what do you think about this? And, and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, thank you. Um, so that part, and really the part for me, you know, as an educator, I always started every um, class when I was an administrator and I would talk to new students with the quote, failing to plan is planning to fail. And so, that really sums up the way I approach this. Like, you know, we, we need to have a goal and that goal needs to be for me full brain restoration. And so now we've got that goal. Let's go back and figure out how we're going to get there. That works in your family. Yeah. And so you're talking to parents of people or children, mostly, I guess, maybe children, young adults. So, interestingly, young adults has turned out to be quite a little niche for me. Yeah. What they call transitional family, um, transitional age youth. So that, um, you know, 17, 18 to 24, which, and that may be because we had personal experience in that area. Maybe. I think that it's actually though, honestly, I think it's one of the 
the biggest needs that area for because there's a lot more out there for parents of younger children, especially in all of the um, FBT literature and support groups. And it's really parents of young adults that are very much left out. Um, a lot of the stuff that you're telling a parent of a 12 year old isn't really applicable to a parent of a 17 or 18 year old. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we were so, uh, because our daughter got sick at 17, our program just completely set us up for success by starting off at the begin, at the sort of the beginning of the whole process with reinforcing for her that, you know, we were her family, we loved her, we were going to be in this for the long haul, and not setting any expectation that somehow on her 18th birthday, you know, we would be miraculously gone and she'd be able to do whatever she wanted. Um, so that was an important expectation. And um, I, I think that parents, it's very interesting. I have three other kids too, so she's the youngest of four. So it's sort of even in other areas, I've noticed this, that somehow parents today have are sometimes given the message that you're supposed to pay the bills, but but then at 18, you don't have any say in anything. Um, and I'm far, I'm not an authoritarian parent at all. Um, very, you know, sort of collaborative in style. And also, you're not really an adult until I'm not paying your bills, you know. So, uh, so using that, you know, with a young adult, that leverage, that financial leverage can be key. And, and, and also, even when people say I don't have financial leverage, People often underestimate how much their children love them and want to do, you know, do the best thing for all of them. So even in I've seen situations where a, where a young adult could just sort of walk away and they don't because they don't want to sever that relationship with their parent. So they're willing to um, do some super hard things to move forward together. Yeah. You know, one of the. I think one of the most difficult positions to be in and probably one of the positions that for the parent is actually quite a, um, a mental health hazard for their own mental health is the position where they have a young adult, adult that's moved out of home that is actually independent that doesn't want to recover. Mm-hmm. That I I frequently um, talk to parents who are in that sort of situation, and so and I'm often asking myself, what just in in terms of support, what can be done for these people who really don't have leverage? They have a child that's an adult that really doesn't want to recover, and it's not necessarily saying we can fix this problem. But I feel a lot of the time there's just not much out there for them to help them get through that feeling of hopelessness and and knowing that they can't actually control this situation. Yeah. So it that's a you're it is the toughest situation that there is to sort of have to watch it. Um and I, I just had, um, you know, really great success of working with a family who was in that situation and sort of by mindfully navigating. And in this particular situation, um, the sibling, the younger sibling had been sort of largely sheltered from from everything, but was now an adult um, themselves. 
And we switched up the dynamic by bringing the sibling into the conversation. And that had never happened. And that was such a game changer emotionally that this young adult ended up signing themselves into treatment voluntarily. It's not the end of the road, of course. There's a lot more to go. But um, but they never thought that could happen. And then in cases where it's not going to happen, you know, it really becomes about setting the boundaries so that you can be loving and validating for your child, but also not, you know, sort of enabling the eating disorder. And, you know, that can mean things in terms of you don't get together, you know, around mealtimes because you're not going to be, you know, you can sort of be clear, I'm not going to be present while restriction is happening or I'm not going to be present while purging is happening. Um, you know, I love you and I want to see you and check in on you, um, but that's going to be my boundary. Um, I've had parents, um, we have a mutual friend, um, Lisa in Canada, who talks about this a lot, who, you know, sort of at certain points, the hospital would call and, you know, want her to, to come get her over 18. And she had to start saying, no, I'm not. You all are telling, you know, on the one breath, you're saying you're over 18, you can do what you want. And then in the another breath saying, come get, come get you. And I, I can't do that. So, you know, it's so, it's so it tough way. and it, it's so specific to each family in each situation, yeah. how to navigate yeah. that type of thing. I think that it's the parents in that situation that, that really, they are actually the ones that sometimes keep me up at night. Um, and that's, that's just because that's what, that's what my parents were in. I was that 20 year old that was not going to have anything to do with recovery and was financially independent and, or, you know, it must've been horrific for them to yeah. just have to watch that. Um, so I often think of that. It's the scariest kind of thing. thing I, I can contemplate. And one of, that's one of the things I talk with people when their kid is 17, 18, 19, and they do still have the leverage, um, you know, be it college, you know, sort of whatever it is. I talk to them about that and encourage them to do it. And one of the things, you know, I, I talk a lot about the my daughter missed a year total off school. Um, I'm an educator. My oldest daughter's a PharmD. It's not that we don't care about, you know, higher level education, but we were sort of, our expectation was set by our program that, you know, unless she's well, it's not appropriate to do that, which was so helpful that, that they gave us that grounding. And, you know, so I'll tell people with their 20 or 21 year old, I hear you saying that you don't want them to fall behind educationally or be out of step with their peers. And I'll be honest with you, my worst nightmare is a person with anorexia and a college degree. Because we all know that once someone with anorexia gets a job, they're going to do that job amazingly well, you know, and they're going to move up and they're going to get promoted until they don't. But there's a lot of space between, you know, be, between starting out and hitting rock bottom. So I really encourage parents to, you know, prioritize this. And in my experience, um, most people that can have normal and their eating disorder too choose that option so you know and um i'm not a parent but i often hear in parenting things it's said that as a parent you you wake up and you you choose your guilt for the day and it, that just reminded me of that because i imagine a lot of parents when trying to decide well do we keep them out of university out of school do we make them take a year off then they feel guilty about the fact that they might be influencing negatively their child's future by 
taking making them take a year out of school or do they feel guilty because they might be negatively influencing their child's future by not making them take a year out of school absolutely it's it that's they are all really hard choices none of it is easy um at all and um that's why i think having someone in your corner with a little bit of distance can be helpful. There's another thing I used to do in teaching or in as an administrator when we, I'd be doing orientations for students and things like that. I would always encourage them, let your advisor, let your instructor know about the problems you're having in your life because when you're in the midst of it, it's a little like you're in a, the middle of a corn maze and you have no way to get out. But you bring in someone with who knows you um, and cares for you but has a little bit of distance and it's like you've put someone in a helicopter above the corn maze and they can give you directions on how to get out and i think that part of that is also just the exhaustion factor that so many parents get to when they've been doing this for years and they're just so tired and and feel hopeless and helpless so again having somebody to just start having ideas and supporting them and saying well you did this right but maybe try this and that and the other Absolutely. And validating the struggle. And I mean, I tell people I could, there's nothing anyone ever could have said to prepare me for the level of exhaustion. There's nothing. um, And I, I provided end of life care for my mom and sister who died of cancer at 41 and 61. And this so much more exhausting. So even just having a person who, who understands that piece of it, um, I think is huge. And, and just so much of it as well, you know, we, hopefully you have people in your life, a, a lot of times people fall by the wayside when you're struggling with um, sort of a more invisible illness in your child or something like that, that people don't rally around you the same way. Um, and so maybe people that have been close in your life have dropped off. And also even the ones that you're so close to, they just they just don't get it. Um, and so that piece of it, just having someone and other people who who totally understand that piece of it um and how hard it is and the guilt and everything else you're bringing up is is just a relief you know it's kind of um you know you've been carrying a backpack full of rocks by yourself and now someone's holding on the other strap for you so you know you don't have no load anymore but your load is a little bit lighter and more manageable yeah um and it's it's also it's so difficult when somebody's in a position of being a parent with of an adult with an eating disorder and people will say things like look after yourself make sure you look after yourself and i i've often i've often those words have come out of my mouth plenty of times from talking to parents and then i just think to myself how is that even possible actually the the the, the scary thing is is that there's no end in sight a lot of the time um and so i i often say that but I don't know how that would happen. How how would you look after yourself? The self-care conundrum is a is a very difficult one and it, it brings in the guilt, like you said, because you you know, you sort of almost feel guilty about not doing self-care, but then if you take time to do self-care, you feel guilty as well. Um I do a lot of sort of reframing, you know, sort of what that self-care may look like. I find interestingly, one of the things is people sometimes expect themselves to sort of soldier through this experience without a ton of, you know, sort of crying or things like that. And I'll, I'll tell people, oh, no, self-care can mean you go in the shower every day at 9 p.m. and cry for 30 minutes. 
you know, that may be the self-care you need at that time. And, um, and that can be really important because I, though, you know, it's frustrating and insulting sometimes when people are, you know, oh, well, you should just go, you know, get a mani-pedi, get a massage. And you're like, we're so past those things. No, because can you imagine just sitting in a spa? Like when, how can you just relax when... First of all, you're not going to a spa because everyone there is going to engage in diet and body talk and you're going to end up standing up in the middle of it and just screaming, what is wrong with you people? Um, so yeah, even, and that does make it even your own friends. It can be hard to be around your non-eating disorder peers because of the things that they say. So all of a sudden your little, you know, self-care happy hour turned into just making you feel worse because you think, how can I ever rejoin this world? You know? Right. Right. And I do think that parents often get, um, PTSD type symptoms that can be triggered by diet talk as well. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there's, I, I tell, I talk a lot of with people about once your child is on the way to recovery, that's when your own recovery has to begin. And even, you know, if you've got someone with an over 18 and they're doing a little bit better, um, and I've, I've read, I've led a, um, in-person support group, um, for the last three years, I think as well. And I end up with a lot of parents of young adults there as t- too. And it's, there's a really tough space where they are, when they are doing better and you need to really lean into that. But at the same time, it's terrifying especially if you've been involved in getting them better. And now the answer is, okay, now I've got to step back and maybe let some things happen. And, you know, having the hindsight of the process, there, there are things with my daughter that were, um, you know, what I now would call feedback, not failure, but felt an awful lot like failure at the time and were, you know, sort of very scary and terrifying. So, I'm acknowledging that PTSD part and acknowledging that there's going to be a push pull. I, one of the things that um, commonly comes up in families is sort of weight loss um, in other family members, other children in the family, things like that. And, um, you know, sometimes cause for alarm and sometimes, you know, not necessarily cause for alarm. Um, you know, maybe it's someone was, you know, went on a big vacation in the winter and, you know, gained 10 or 15 pounds and they're sort of naturally just losing it, you know, but that can be such a horrible trigger for someone who's had a child with a, you know, where weight loss was involved. And so learning, um, you know, I, I coach parents a lot. It's okay to own your truth as well. And it's okay to sort of say out loud to your family, this is hard for me because this happened. Um, what one thing that's really unusual is sometimes it can be hard because, um, and this is our experience as well, is your child may not remember some of the worst parts of your life. So they may not even know something is sort of PTSD triggering to you because they don't remember it because it happened during when they were malnourished. Um, so figuring out, you know, once they're on the right path, you know, how do you pivot to less day-to-day help and more sort of oversight. Now, what steps are you going to take to start sort of rejoining the real world and things like that? Um, yeah. And I, we, we are seven years out now from the beginning and my daughter is doing, I could not be more delighted phenomenally well. Um, and one of the things um, I cooked for my family a lot when they were growing up. So I always laugh at the, um, eating, you know, prevent an eating disorder by having a family dinner every night, sort of that sends me into sort of like 
hysterical laughter whenever I encounter that um, because I did that. And um, once she was better and went off to school, I did not want to enter my kitchen for any reason and certainly not to cook dinner on a nightly basis. Just no, I just did not. I just did not enjoy it at all. Um, felt really awful. And it was sad. I, t- I did a little bit of mourning because that was something that I actually did enjoy. And then it started coming back and I would enjoy cooking. You know, now if my whole family, you know, came, you know, during Christmas or whatever, then I could get into doing all of that sort of cooking. Um, but the day to day was still kind of a chore. I always joke that I feel really sorry for my husband because he married a really good cook who just quit cooking one day. Um, and now um, I'm actually doing a meal service. I do plated because plated is for people who like to cook. And so that has that's sort of a step in my healing process of getting back, getting myself back to who I was before in terms of that enjoyment of cooking and, you know, all of that sort of experience of it and having reframing it once again from something that was so dreadful but necessary to something I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good example. Uh, how yeah you said that seven years ago and it it still um had an effect on your relationship with cooking absolutely one of the things i notice about parents and eating disorder um arena on you know sort of the parent forums online and things like that is how quickly it becomes important to parents to help other parents so you you can have someone join brand new. We we all you know sort of recognize that deer in the headlights. What just happened to me? Look, um, and they're asking all sorts of questions and things like that. And you know everybody's supporting them, educating them, providing them resources. And then a week later, someone new will join, and you'll see this one week old you know member say this incredibly astute and supportive thing. And so I do think for a lot of parents, the peer forums do provide a way even in the midst for you to feel like you're doing something productive, even if it's not working necessarily in your family or your family's in a rough patch. If you helped another family with that, that is tremendous self-care in for a lot of people. So I want to really thank you again for having me on and sort of final thoughts about things. Um, one of, and I, I, which maybe I would have talked about this a little bit more, but one of the things that I am able to do by providing Skype coaching and phone coaching is to have all the family members, usually both parents, but I've even had it with sort of grandma and grandpa and that kind of thing as well. Everybody available to hear the same information at the same time at a time and place that's convenient for them. And that I think um, really alleviates a lot of the stress of, you know, because you've got these appointments for your kids and things like that generally. So they're running around stress. So we can have conversations about planning and strategy and next steps, next steps when everyone is in a frame of mind where they're not just trying to squeeze it in among two other things or whatever. And um, it enables, um, you know, so the dynamic commonly is the moms do a lot and or do you know making a do just sort of doing a lot it's just the division of labors the way it is for a lot of families and in my experience personal experience experience mentoring you know in real life online and things like that if you've got a dad in the family that dad 
being involved is a game changer for everyone. And oftentimes um, it, it helps the men and the dads so much um, because we can work together to divide the labor and define the roles. And really I'm very conscious of explicitly um, you know, sort of labeling the work, the labor that the the father of the family is doing, even if it's not specifically, you know, sort of mealtime support because they're not there. And I think that makes a huge difference for people. I think they feel, um, you know, the family feels more as they're functioning as a team. And the, um, you know, fathers are oftentimes able to you know, change a little bit, absorb a little bit more because they're included and because they also understand the really powerful roles they're playing, you know, whether it's distraction or whether they take over the night snack and do that one. So that's, you know, mom's cry in the shower self-care portion of the day or, you know, sort of whatever it is, um, helping families do that um, so that it's not only, you know, sort of fighting the eating disorder and helping the child, but also having the family move through it to become stronger is huge for me. And you and I have had this conversation so many times, but my personal feeling like this field will change drastically when it's less female dominated and oriented. And um, so, so I just, there are so many amazing fathers that I have learned so much from um, in the last, you know, couple years or whatever. It just seems like, maybe spaces are becoming more inviting and then that in turn invites more people and sort of it's that it's instead of a spiral down, it's a spiral up and um, the dads are doing amazing things and so glad to have them, um, you know, in the fight, both at the individual level and, and at a higher level. And I think that's going to be another big game changer for us. Yeah. Um, and so how do you see, like what effect do you see that have having when that sort of really starts to happen? Oh, I, it's just, um, it's so powerful in terms of, you know, bringing, um, maybe sometimes distance has sort of started to, to happen in a relationship in a family where, um, you know, if dad doesn't think there's anything he can do and, you know, he's that that's not sort of explicitly defined what, benefit he's bringing, you know, that can sort of start to bring people apart. And so bringing everyone in brings people back together. And I do have a dad, um, I'm going to give my friend Rick a shout out. And Rick often when he talks to groups of parents, he'll say, the game changer was when I took off work, my dad said, my, my kids said, Oh, damn, dad took off work to come to this doctor's appointment. Okay. interesting yeah. that's fascinating isn't it it's kind of a yeah. bit de depressing um <laughs> dad yeah, dad's I, work feels like more important maybe or something or right or just you know we all have to make you know somebody's got to pay the bills um and so you know like i said the division of labor and i've i've had you know i have dad friends you and i both know alec who was the primary person on refeeding his daughter and all the care and, and that kind of stuff. But the norm is sort of the more traditional thing. And given how difficult this is, oftentimes, you know, the, the lower earning person will take, will take off work, you know, take leave or, or quit their jobs completely, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so you just sort of naturally divide that way. And I think that um, pushing against that divide and, and coming together instead of separating really makes a huge, huge difference in the whole process.
Huge thank you to JD for coming and chatting to me. I really like talking to other people who do recovery coaching or pay it mentoring or whatever you really want to call what is basically a person who has got lived experience of a certain condition or um, situation guiding and helping out the person who is currently going through that same experience or situation. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's very important, lived experience, because it's just like all of the rest. It's, it's, it's everything else other than the theory and um, what we believe to be facts, which actually, usually as we move through science, we then realise aren't actually facts at all. Um, I think that uh, you've heard me go on about it all the time, that the eating disorder treatment model has to change. And we have to start listening to people with lived experience more because they tell the real story. If the textbooks are maybe the skeleton, then the lived experience is the flesh and the feeling and everything else. And it really is about how it feels and actually what it is like and what really happens. Not what you're told might happen by a doctor who has never been through it and read it in a textbook, but what really actually happens and more importantly probably for parent but to parent support what works and what doesn't work and how it feels that's important too because when we feel that we're alone in our experience we feel alone and that's one of the most terrifying things about any of this is when you feel alone and you don't feel understood and you think that nobody else is experiencing or has experienced what you're experiencing And that is what Expert by Experience can do. I've been thinking a lot about the treatment model for eating disorders for years and um, something occurred to me just recently. I've I've been on lots of committees. Um, Every committee I could join and every... I, I just wanted to be a part of trying to make the change, I guess, with the existing treatment models. And more recently, I've, I've grown tired of that because it's just not happening quick enough. And something I realized was that one of the reasons I think that we're really having problems making change in this field is that we spend a lot of time trying to find a consensus and trying to make it so that everybody agrees on what the best way to treat eating disorders is. When does everybody agree about anything in anything? We're not going to all agree. And actually, that's okay. Because what we really need in the field of eating disorders is we need diversity and we need variety because that gives people choice. So I advocate for and I believe in because it was crucial in my recovery, unrestricted eating, health every size approach, and neural rewiring. And not everybody in this field is going to agree with me on those things. Not everybody is going to agree with me that unrestricted eating is okay. And I'm sick of arguing with people that are not interested in listening to what I have to say about unrestricted eating. And it's okay that not everybody agrees with me because there is room for variety in this field. And when we accept that there is room for variety, it means that we are giving the people who are in recovery the ability to choose the method of recovery that they think is best for them. 
And that variety won't come from textbooks. That variety is going to come from people with lived experience, people who can say, I've been through this, and this is what worked for me, and it might work for you as well. And we need to accept that those of us with lived experience don't all have the same story. And that's okay, because we are different. We are so similar in many ways. But we are different people too, with different experiences and different stories. And it's all valuable. Anyway, so just another plug for listening to experts with experience. And if I was a parent of a person, child with an eating disorder, I would be so thankful for people like JD. And I, those would be the people, I know those would be the people that I would be going to and asking for help. I certainly wouldn't be going to a doctor who had not had a child who had had an eating disorder. That's not the sort of help I would need or want. I'd want to ask and talk to somebody who had lived through it and gloriously come out the other side. That's what will be important to me. Thanks for listening. Cheers and until next time. Cheerio.